Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 205 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we've got another money podcast with Mike Michalowicz about entrepreneurial poverty and why average law firms lose. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Gusto, and Case Text. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so please stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on. Last week in our final episode of 2018, we mentioned some small firm strategy sessions that Stephanie Everett is doing and encouraged all of you to end the year by taking the small firm scorecard. If you didn't do either of those things at the end of 2018, now that it's it's New Year's (laughs) resolution time in new 2019, it remains the perfect time to do both of those things. Stephanie has another workshop next week, second week in January, which you can sign up for through our insider Facebook group. If you just sign up as an insider, you'll find the event there and you can sign up for a coaching strategy session with Stephanie. And if you haven't started 2019 by having you and the other people in your firm take the small firm scorecard, it can be a great way for you to figure out what kinds of things you could be working on in your business for the coming year. Mike Michalowicz, today's podcast guest, is also the book club guest for this month. And we do the book club in the Facebook group. We talk about the book throughout the month. We have a discussion forum where we all jump on a Zoom video and talk about the book. And Mike is actually going to be doing an expert clinic exclusively for lab members as well. All of that is going to be super cool. And you can at least get some of it for free by signing up for Insider. Yeah, Mike's got a number of good business books, but Primarily, his book, Profit First, is the one that will be this month's book club book, and I think is a really foundational concept for a lot of small firms to at least think through how they might implement in their firm as you think through a financial strategy. Lawyerist doesn't do it exactly the way he describes it, but we've for sure incorporated the core concepts of his Profit First methodology even to how we run our business. Absolutely. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Jake Heller from Case Text, and then we'll talk to Mike Michalowicz. Hey, I am Jake Heller. I am the CEO and co-founder of CaseText. CaseText is artificial intelligence-assisted legal research that is cheaper and better than what you're using right now. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Thanks for being with us today, Jake. I'm happy to be here, man. So we wanted to talk about, speaking of AI and legal research and legal technology, how do you decide what to use? And you've got a collection of tips for our listeners. Yeah, and I think it's a really important question because especially now, there are over 704 different legal technology startups, Hmm. some which may be more helpful and some may not be so much. And I have been running case decks for over six years and have been coding for my entire adult life. And so I have a few tips of how I choose products, especially as myself, a former lawyer also, how I choose products for my practice that might be helpful for listeners here. All right, go for it. So tip one is don't change for the sake of change. And this may sound like it's coming from a person who may want you to change for the sake of change because I'm I'm trying to sell a legal tech product, but really (laughs) only change when you feel like you have a real and actual problem you have to solve. Because the truth is that picking a new technology takes time, it takes effort, Um, you have to learn something new, 
So only change if and only if you have a real problem to solve. Yeah, that's a good one. Which brings me to my second tip, which is that only actually even try new technologies that purport to solve a real problem in your practice. You would be shocked by how many people I've talked to who buy new technology and then later realize it's not actually helping them solve a real problem in their practice, like you know, helping you build better, getting more clients, practicing better. And they could have known that from the very start had they just checked out what the technology and company purports to solve rather than you know, diving into the coolest, newest thing. That becomes a distraction rather than a productivity boost. Exactly. My third tip, and I think this is the most important one, is really test out the customer and user experience before you buy. And I mean that in a few different ways. If they don't have a free trial for you to try the technology before you buy, then that's sometimes a flag that it's either too expensive and complex and they need you to talk to a salesperson before you even try it, or it's not user-friendly and they're trying to hide behind that. If they're not transparent with their price before you buy, then there might be something fishy there. Sometimes there's a good reason to not you know, promote the price super high, you know, because it's, it's, it's customizable or, or custom to your purposes. But most of the time, if they're not transparent with the price before you buy, it's because it's way too expensive. And I would really recommend starting a chat or email or phone call or however you prefer to get customer service from the company. Because as a general rule of thumb, however they treat you, you know, before you start using the product in terms of customer service, that is the most you can expect out of their customer service after you buy the product. And so, you know, use the free trial, start talking with customer service, et cetera, before you make a buying decision. And you'll have a really good sense for what that company is like and how it's like to deal with that company. Hmm, that's a good point. My final tip is to be open to trying new things. You know, if a company really passes the sniff test before, you know, you buy it, if they are transparent and open with their price, if you try the free trial and it's good, and if you aren't changing just for the sake of change, but because you have a real need you're solving for and they solve that problem, then go for it. There are a lot of folks out there, you know, many of whom are former lawyers who are starting companies because they want to make the practice of law better. And it could be that a new technology may actually solve a real problem that you have at your firm and can really put you in a better position. So you know, give it a proper test and including their customer service and support, really understand the pricing. And if everything checks out, be open to new ideas. That's awesome. Jake, though, what about startups? Like, how do you decide whether or not this startup is worth investing your time, your money, the cost of switching in versus a more established company that you're relatively confident will be around tomorrow? That's a great question. And CaseTax is, is in a lot of ways in startup mode ourselves. And so I think it's an important question to ask even for folks checking us out. And the truth is that there are a few ways you can figure out whether or not this is a company that's going to be around next year, right? Because if they're not going to be around next year, then then why even bother, right? The first thing is look to see on their website if they have any customers. Mm -hmm. And if they have customers, they'll promote that and they'll say that very clearly. If they don't say that they have customers and have testimonials, et cetera, that's maybe a negative signal. You're probably signing up to be a guinea pig. Exactly, exactly. And you don't necessarily want to be the first one ever to try to do something. <laughs> um, so the the second thing is also check, you know, Google the company name and look at websites like Crunchbase.com. Crunchbase is a comprehensive compendium of all venture capital financings that have ever happened for all startups. And it's a quick way you can figure out whether or not a startup has substantial venture capital backing. Because the deal is that either they're making money from customers or they've raised venture capital to finance their operations for the time being. But if they have neither venture capital 
nor making money for customers, it is only a matter of time until they go out of business. So those would be the two biggest places that I would look. Thanks, Jake. That's really helpful. And for the listeners, Case Text is offering a 14-day free trial and exclusively for our listeners, 15% off if you try it at casetext.com slash lawyerist. That's casetext.com slash lawyerist, and we'll include the link in the show notes. Jake, thanks so much. Happy to be here, Sam. This is Mike Michalowicz here. I am the author of Profit First, along with some other books. And it's a pleasure to be here on Lawyerist. Hey, Mike, I'm so glad you're with us today. So Profit First is the first book you mentioned, but you've got four other ones, right? Yes. Clockwork is the most recent one, I think. That's right. Clockwork was released as of us recording this today uh, about eight weeks ago. Yep. And the, the concept is to design a business to run itself. Profit First was about uh, making a business permanently profitable. And uh, what I found is every book I'm writing is building on the needs that readers have that they voice from reading the prior book. Yeah, I noticed that. It's sort of, uh, I think people could start at the beginning with, say, the toilet paper entrepreneur um, or Profit First. But it, yeah, it kind of marches down the pain points that an entrepreneur might have. You know, the big aha for me was uh, I used to get a question when people would come to me and say, hey, Mike, what book should I read next? And I used to blurt out an answer. Oh, I think you'd love this book. And it wasn't necessarily my book. It was just a book that I was enamored by at the moment. And um, I've changed my tune. When people say, what book should I read next? I respond with a question simply saying, well, what's the biggest challenge you're facing now in your business? I think there's many inspirational books that we read or, or they have great content, but it's not applicable. And therefore, that knowledge goes by the wayside. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we should need to tackle where we have a challenge. And for me as a writer, what I do is I look at what the most common challenge I'm hearing from readers in the moment after reading one of my books. And that becomes the indicator of what I need to write next. So the so we can sum them up then. Profit first is if you're struggling with finances, paying taxes, making sure being yeah. profitable. The pumpkin plan is narrowing your focus and focusing on your best clients. That's right. Clockwork is systems, uh, making sure that you don't have to be doing all the work in your own company and building systems up around it so that you can take a vacation. Ba-boom. Uh, I haven't read The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur or Surge, so you'll have to sum those up for me. Yeah. So Toilet Paper Entrepreneur is starting with scant resources. And that's actually the reality for almost every startup is we, yep. we don't have funding, we don't have investors, we don't even have a, a network of, of prospects yet. And how do we leverage that lack to actually be a leverage, uh, a good thing? So that's what Toilet Paper Entrepreneur is about. And then Surge is about catching market momentum. One of the most effective yet underutilized marketing techniques is just watching the trend of a market. So as a market has a specific need and the need grows, if you simply position your offering in front of it, uh, the market will carry you. You don't have to be a good marketer. Mm. And that's what a surge is and surge is about. You said that wasn't your most popular book. And I I think that it sounds to me like that's because it's um, sort of big picture thinking yes. that companies need to be at a more sophisticated level. They need to kind of master the concepts in your other books before they can even start thinking about what that <laughs> I should have called like. you uh, before writing the book. Yeah, in, in 15 <laughs> seconds, you summarize the challenge. Every book I've written has been very tactical, very specific, very actionable. And Surge was more of a theoretical book in understanding these concepts, but did not give you the action tips like the other books. And I, I would attribute that's one of the reasons it's struggled. Co coincidentally, or maybe ironically, it's actually one of my favorite books mm -hmm. because I think the impact can be so significant, but uh, many of the readers are not grasping it that way. And 
therefore it's kind of a dud. Well, I feel like, I, I mean, I'm going to read it now, oh, cool. uh, definitely, because like, I, I feel like that is the conversation we're having in law. Like the market yes. is clearly going in a direction. There is a wave that will carry you if you jump on it. And the struggle that we have is just convincing people the wave exists, yes. right? Like, or that they need to get on it because everybody's sitting out there floating, you know, waiting and watching other people catch the wave now and then and get trounced. But man, the tide is going to shape up and this wave is going to be fucking beautiful and everybody needs to jump on it. We go through, so. I, I think every industry goes through the seven stages of grief. Is I think that's what's called. Like first <laughs> there's this denial yeah. that the market's changing. Then there's anger and resistance. I have a business I started coincidentally using the surge model to uh, serve accountants. And the accounting profession, I think very similar to the legal profession, is going through a massive change because of the advancements of technology. You know, doing data entry as an accountant anymore is not an effective method because computers are doing it better. You must become a consultant. So I saw this movement in the market, inserted an offering that cared for customers that were making this leap. But what was so interesting is to observe the resistance from many accountants. Like, this mm -hmm. is not happening. It's a fad. Computers can never replace humans. You know, we see this with Uber. I, there's still taxi cab drivers out there say Uber's a fad. No, no, yeah. the, the market has shifted. <laughs> and it's the people who jump on it in the early stages actually catch the wave. And the people who only acknowledge it after the wave has passed are left out in the ocean abandoned. Yeah. Well, we could geek out on this all day, but I want yeah. to, I missed my chance to segue beautifully um, when we were- I, I ruined it. <laughs> no, ruined you didn't. Um, but when, when you summed up Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, that, that was my opening for a beautiful segue to- a quote from the beginning of Clockwork that I wanted to start with, which is, uh, I mean, this was like on page two. You talk about your life's mission is to conquer entrepreneurial poverty. And that was a pretty graphic term for me that sort of sums up, I think, where a lot of people are. So d describe what you mean by that term and how you think about it in the context of business. Yeah, it's, it's a term that I think applies to, I'm convinced now, actually applies to the vast majority of entrepreneurs. And I've lived that. What entrepreneurial poverty is, is this perception of your state of affairs and the reality. Specifically, when you start a business or run a business, the outside world who are not entrepreneurs think usually two things. The day you started your company, you became a millionaire. You're extremely mm -hmm. wealthy and you don't work at all. You can you have all the freedom <laughs> and time to do whatever you want. You, you sit on the beach drinking Mai Tais. The reality is actually the polar opposite. The vast majority of entrepreneurs are broke, surviving check by check in a constant panic financial state and working their tails off. Um, they are working the 12, 14, 18 hour days and just going back and grinding it out. So this disparity between a perceived reality and the actual reality is, is this gap that I call entrepreneurial poverty. The saddest part though, is we as entrepreneurs feel compelled to carry on this air of success. Yeah. So as we're dying financially, we're like, oh, we're doing, everything's great. I'm crushing it. And then some people say, well, I got, you know, drive that Mercedes around just to prove them doing, you know, and them successful. I, I remember there's a book, uh, I think uh, the self-made millionaire or something where they talk about, you can, you can look like you have money or you can have money, but it's yeah, pretty rare yeah. for people to be able to do both. Yeah. That's what, that's what jumped into my head when you talk about that. Cause I know lots of lawyers who drive around in fancy cars and live in big houses and are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. I think if you feel compelled to show it, that usually indicates you're broke. There's an analogy or a parallel that runs in poker. I play a pickup game with my friends once a month. We play, you know, Texas Hold'em. And this adage plays true every time. 
the person who is trying to push the people off the table, who's showing success, they want to convince you, you they have a powerful hand are the ones with a weak hand. And that's the rule of poker. If you have a weak hand, you want to get everyone else off the mm -hmm. table. That's the only way you can win. Now, the reverse is if you have a good hand, you play meekly. You want everyone to yeah. stay in to keep contributing <laughs> to the pot. Well, in business, the people with the good hands financially, uh, time-wise, confidence-wise, often don't feel compelled they need to show this success. They, they, they live a much more meek – and I don't, meek doesn't mean that they don't have wealth and they don't enjoy it, that they live like paupers, but they don't feel compelled to prove it to the world. Yeah. The people who feel compelled to prove it inevitably are experiencing some form of impoverishment. I, I've often said about law that solo and small firm practice is a really hard way to earn a decent living. Yeah. And, and I think that sort of encompasses that idea. I mean, we, everyone's familiar with the various salary surveys in, in law, at least that, you know, most lawyers are clearing something between 35 and $65,000 a, a year before taxes. And that's their take home pay, which is just, Oof. I mean, that, that, that isn't why anybody gets into business for themselves. I think so. a fatal flaw is this comparative though, that goes on. Like I, I would never go to any of my children and say, Hey, what's the class average? Uh, let's aspire to be that. Right. What I tell my children is, where are your strengths? What are you best at? Let's be the most of who you are. And let's ignore what the class is doing. Let's do the most of you. And uh, sadly, we carry this mentality over to our businesses. We look at the industry standard and say, most lawyers don't make more than 65000 I guess that's my lot in life. Right. And we don't restructure our business to achieve what we feel is fair for us. And we don't live into the most of who we can be. And, and money is only one measurement. I think there's a there's an impoverishment around more than money. I think there's impoverishment of time. I think that's actually the most insidious. There's impoverishment around joy, you know, doing what, what we feel compelled and, and get satisfaction out. There's an impoverishment around contribution. Mm -hmm. In fact, we feel so scared to be in a giving mode because we don't know when the other shoe's gonna drop. So I think all these elements can be radically improved if we stop the comparing component. Well, that's a really good point. I mean, how do you, but how do you stop? Cause like, that's what everyone does, especially when you start a company, you know, I spent the first, you know, before I started my own law practice and, and soon after, and, and in my current business, you know, you spend a lot of your time wondering what your competitors are doing, having lunch with them, asking how their businesses are going. And everybody's probably lying about it anyway, but yeah, everyone's lying. <laughs> yeah. it's but all how bullshit. Do, how do you get away I, from I mean, them? I think there's two techniques. I mean, the first one, and perhaps it's the more noble and unrealistic one, is to simply set your own personal goals. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is my, what, how do I define a comfortable life? How do I uh, define a joyful life? And then reverse engineer from there. So some people may say, listen, if I'm bringing home $20,000 a year, I can live the way I define to be joyful and, and comfortable. That's actually a very wealthy person. And another person may say, I need 200000 a year. And that's fine too. I think we have to define it for ourselves. But honestly, keeping up with the Joneses and comparing is, is human nature. So I think the other perhaps more realistic thing is to reassign our comparison. Don't compare yourself to the, the industry average. Look at the elite, not even in your industry, just the elite in all industry and say, what, what are they doing that I aspire to compare myself to? And when you look at this new group, you redefine the parameters for your success. And I think they, they also, when they're non-competitors, not in your industry, can actually be a gateway. I, the irony is I go to these association meetings with lawyers or accountants or whoever it is, and while they say verbally they're supporting each other, emotionally they actually want to detract from each other. <laughs> right. Everyone yeah. wants to be the best. So I think it's best to get outside your industry for people who really don't have a, 
a vested interest in your success or failure, but are really there because they want to give the best of themselves. And and so I'm in groups like that too. I, I don't hang out with my industry cohorts as much as people outside my industry that have achieved different results I want. Like this one guy is an extraordinary father. I want to be an extraordinary father. I aspire to learn from him. Another one, extraordinary business person. Another one, um, very in tune with spirituality. I want to hang out with the elite players, if you will, as I define them in those industries, yeah. and aspire to be like them. Well, and I suppose you have to figure out, um, you know, when you're in an industry in the midst of transformation, um, the elite that you need to look up to might not be in your own industry because That's a good we point. haven't figured, like law has absolutely not figured out exactly what the elite of five or 10 or 15 years from now is going to look like. But that's the, the company you need to be building now if you want to win in five years. That's a great And point. so you need to be looking outside the industry for for models. And, you know, there's that great quote, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. So um, <laughs> Uber is not a law firm. It is the wrong model for law firms, but it is useful. So is Amazon. So is Apple. So is, so is, so is whoever is killing it in your, in your city or town or state or whatever. So I concur. I, when I wrote my books to market books, you know, you have to understand a book is a product. It's actually one of the original, probably the original information mm -hmm. product. And high level of competition. You go into Barnes and Nobles, there's a sea of books. <laughs> right. <laughs> good, good luck finding mine. So how do I get my book sold versus everybody else? And what I did was exactly what you shared, Sam. I went outside my industry. One event, I remember, it was a cleaning industry, carpet cleaning, home cleaning. And what I discovered was if you put an 800 number on the back of a product with a pre-recorded message, this industry experiences a 10% sales boost. Huh. People be in the store, they pull off the product, they look at it, and they call the number with their cell phone. So I was like, oh, oh I'll God, put an 800 there's number. There's totally the 800 numbers on the back of your books. Yeah. So I put 800 <laughs> numbers on the, yeah. And not all of them, that's faded pumpkin away now. Pumpkin Plan has it, yeah. But yeah, Pumpkin Plan has it. My uh, toilet paper <laughs> entrepreneur had it. So I did it. And sure enough, it had a slight impact. And no one in the industry was doing it. Hmm. Very cool. We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, um, which is disappointing because I want to, uh, I just want to keep talking, but we'll be back in a few minutes. Legal research is too expensive, hard to use, and time consuming. It doesn't have to be. With Case Text, you can save $2,000 and 210 hours on legal research this year. Case Text has unique artificial intelligence technology that does a lot of the research for you. Just drag and drop a complaint or brief, and you'll quickly find cases on the same facts, legal issues, and jurisdiction. Case Text is fast, well-designed, and comprehensive, and it's very affordable. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get Case Text for $55 a month. Case Text is modern legal research trusted by over 3,000 small firms and 40 firms in the AmLaw 200. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get started. If you have a small business or know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear a lot of hats, and some of those hats are totally great. But some, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, are not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old-school, clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work. But Gusto is, so let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com lawyerist. That's gusto.com lawyerist. In business, reputation is everything. And while online reviews can make or break you, your best clients probably aren't showing up. And that's too bad, because if they did, you'd have more clients, more referrals, and be the top-rated law firm in your area. If you're tired of waiting for reviews to trickle in, you have a choice. 
Either keep waiting or get proactive with Podium. Podium helps you get more views on the sites that matter most. Use their messaging platform to give friendly reminders while sending clients straight to the review sites that you care about the most. With Podium's built-in analytics, you can set goals, monitor progress, and incentivize your team to reach out to more clients. Become the number one choice online. Visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you start. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Okay, Mike, we're back. So um, we were talking about entrepreneurial poverty. And in the course of doing that, we talked about averageness a few times, which brings me to another quote from The Pumpkin Plan, um, where you said provocatively that average companies lose, which is such an obviously correct statement but it flies in the face of how most companies build themselves, which is by asking other people how to do it. And in law practice, this is what you do. You copy what everybody else is doing because the idea is, you know, find out what works from more experienced people, which is also intuitively true, Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but there's more to it. So say more about why average companies lose. Yeah. And maybe I can make it even more provocative yeah. and say that even better companies lose. Mm -hmm. So let me explain both. Average is where we look at the amalgamation of all the competitors out there and we take all the different elements from them and say, this is who we are now. Better is where we compare ourselves to the competition and say, we'll just offer better services, better response time. You know, one very simple uh, example of this could be, Sam, you answer your phone on two rings. I'll say, oh, my law firm will answer my phone on one rings and therefore we're better. But the thing is, <laughs> average and better is not noticeable to the customer. And that's why we lose. You know, you and I can sit on the side of a highway and watch cars going racing down the highway. It becomes a blur very quickly. And maybe that pink car stands out for a second, but I doubt you're yanking out the iPhone to put that all over Instagram. Mm -hmm. it's, it's when a giraffe comes lumbering down the highway that we're in shock. That's the one we pull out the iPhones. And this is on the local news, probably national news, because no one expects a giraffe on a highway. Now, the interesting thing is the reverse is true too. We could be at a zoo and by the time you see with your children that 17th giraffe, it's like, okay, enough with the giraffes. But now a car comes racing through the center of a zoo, careening through a zoo. Well, that's extremely odd and dangerous and scary. And that gets on the news. What we have to do is look at what the environment is like around us and stand out. What uniqueness offers us is to get noticed. Now, one caveat, notice does not guarantee business. You know, right. You, you, it doesn't pay to just be different for the sake of being different. Don't. Like, don't, don't wear a, like a Bozo the Clown costume to your next <laughs> trial. Like, I listen, everyone will notice, but you may not win business. So there has to be this cohesiveness between getting noticed and then translating that very quickly into how you are different and can serve better. Getting noticed in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, a great example of this is uh, Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil took this, the standard circus industry, put a new spin on it, a new flavor on it. Uh, it presented itself, but the, the core elements are basically the same. Acrobatics, uh, different forms of entertainment, but they, they were able to use also a different label. They weren't a Cirque du Soleil is a French term. It stands for the Sun Circus. Or mm -hmm. sun, you know, if you say you're the Sun Circus, you won't get noticed. If you say Cirque du Soleil, customers can't relate to that. You are the giraffe on the highway. So right, what is this curiosity? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you stand out. Hmm. So let's talk about Profit First, because that I, th I think that is probably your most popular book. It is. I, let's talk about the title first, just because... I, Having read the book, I understand what you mean, but the title conveys this idea of like hard-nosed profit above all. It's the kind yes. of uh, it's the kind of business thinking that makes people hate corporations. That's not what it's about. So no, break it down for all. us. <laughs> you know, there was a TV show that 
that was very popular years back called The Biggest Loser. Mm -hmm. And the first time I heard that title, I was upset. I was like, oh my gosh, they're really taking advantage of people. But then we dig into the show, it's like, oh, people losing weight. I get it now. Yeah. People perceive profit first that way too. They're like, is this guy all about money and he doesn't care about people? And uh, the irony is it's actually the flip. I care about people so much that I believe a business has responsibility to care for the money so it can care for its people. Profit first, what I did was this epiphany moment was that the vast majority of entrepreneurs are, as we shared earlier, impoverished financially. And they're impoverished in so many other ways. But financially, I heard a statistic, and I don't know the source anymore, but I do believe it's realistic that 83% of small businesses, that's a company that does $25 million in revenue or less, 83% are in check-to-check survival. Mm -hmm. We need a deposit today to cover the rent and payroll tomorrow. There And what, what confused me is that means we can do all these elements to make a successful business, attract prospects, serve them, deliver our services, have them even raving about us. We can do millions of things to run a business, but we can't figure out profit. What's wrong with us? Yeah. And then I said, oh my gosh, I think it's the formula that's wrong. And the basic essence is this. The traditional formula to profit is that profit comes last. Sales minus expenses results in profit. We actually use terms like it's the bottom line Mm -hmm. or the year end, all terms saying it's last. And it's human nature behaviorally. When something comes last, it means it's insignificant. It can wait. It's the remainder. It's the remainder. It's the leftovers. So it just gets ignored. And many businesses, myself for nearly a decade and a half, treated my profit last. You know, I would meet with my accountant. And he would say, sorry, Mike, no profit this year. And I said, well, maybe next year. I'd literally delay profit <laughs> for 365 days. What we do in profit first Well, is- or the, the worst part of it, which is was my experience for a few years, is on the books you have a bunch of profit, um, but you find yourself digging into your savings or your credit card oh. to pay your tax bill because you didn't account for that. <laughs> yes, that is the worst. Yeah, the, what I call the accounting profit. Yeah. What I believe businesses need is cold, hard cash as a bonus at the end of every quarter even, for the owner, beyond taxes being cared for, beyond their salary being cared for all by the business. What we do real simply is flip the formula. The new formula is sales minus profit equals expenses. And in action, what we do is every time there's a transaction, sale of of service or product, we take a predetermined percentage of that money for profit, remove it from the business, hide it away, run the business off the remainder. Yeah. And we're effectively taking our profit first. And and that way, what was brilliant about this is because it's not just about doing the numbers differently. It's about segmenting your money in different accounts so that you have a bank account, the balance of which actually represents your profits. And so you can just look at your handful of accounts and just tell how healthy your business is at any given moment. Exactly. The, the whole goal here is to capture behavior. So Profit First is a cash management system. Some people think it's an accounting system. They get that confused. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's cash management. And what I realized is many entrepreneurs, business owners, do what's called bank balance accounting. Right. Log into your bank, see if you have money. Based upon what you have, you can spend. So therefore, Profit First is designed to intercept that behavior. We get to continue to do that behavior, but it channels it to the outcome we want, more profitability. What we do is we set multiple accounts at our bank. Now, when you log in, each one of these accounts has different labels associated with it, profit, owner's compensation, taxes, and so forth, operating expenses. The money gets allocated, and now you know before you spend the money what the money's intended use is. 
Yeah. I, I don't want to dig too into the, the book is technical in how to implement this. Not, not difficult, but it, it goes into how to implement it. And it is so obviously a, a helpful way to manage your company's money that if you've ever run into a problem like this, you should run out and, and get dig into it. My associate who worked for me when I was struggling with taxes had his own system where he just, he had a separate savings account for taxes and every paycheck, because I think when he was paid as an independent contractor, just every paycheck, he pulled out 30% of that paycheck and dumped it into his tax savings account, which is such a no brainer way to make sure you have enough money to pay your taxes at the end of the year that I copied yes. it. And then there went my tax problems. I'm good now. Yeah. Well, voila. It's, <laughs> you know, don't let the simplicity be confused with, right. in, with ineffectiveness. Yeah. It is so simple, yet it is so highly effective. Because what happens is it leverages human nature. When that money's reserved, it, you don't even feel the pain. There's a, I study behavioral psychology. This is not my uh, degree, and, and I'm not a behavioral psychologist, but I just love the subject. So I've read countless things about it. I've attended courses around it. And there's one thing called loss aversion. Loss aversion is once we possess something. If we lose it, we feel it's much more painful if we never had it in the first mm -hmm. place. By allocating money toward taxes, uh, and the business pays for it. I literally have people call me and say, I can't wait till tax time because my business <laughs> is paying it. Right. Even though we all know logically, well, that's really your money. The government's still taking the same portion. The fact you never had your hands on it for a moment, it reduces that pain. We really want to leverage our behavioral psychology in all aspects of money management. Well, and you want to do the same thing with profits, right? Like my problem was I didn't have tax money. I set up a separate account. I started pulling out taxes with every paycheck. And all of a sudden I have the money I need for taxes. If you don't have yeah. profits, set up a separate account to hold your profits put it in there every time you get paid and magically you'll have profits. Like it's, it's that simple. You, you mentioned behavior change though. And, um, you spend a fair amount of time in all of your books addressing the resistance that you anticipate people are going to have to adopting your system. Yes. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because a lot of the things you're suggesting, some of them are harder than others, like firing all of your bad clients. I, I get why that is like a wrenching thing for people to be able to do. Yes. Allocating your money to separate cash accounts seems like a note, just a simple thing to try and, and you know, why not? But I'm wondering like what, what motivates that sort of tone in your books of um, pushing against the resistance and, and how hard do you think it is to overcome that? Well, we need to prepare people for it because we all will have excuses. Whenever we have to change from a comfortable established habit, even if it's not serving us, the fact that we do it as a routine, it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, so I do that to preemptively dispel the resistance that people are naturally going to have to go back to the comfortable yet unproductive ways. I want to say, I want to list all their excuses and saying, here's what you're going to say. Here's what you're going to say. So that when they do say, they say, oh my gosh, I actually said that. And they see their way through it. The, the funny thing is, you know, we have over 100,000 businesses now doing profit first in our estimation. I and mean, that's a reserved estimation. And what we have found is that one of the biggest challenges is actually setting up the accounts, which to your point, it's like nothing. Yeah. It's an hour or two of your day, one time ever, and this is set up. Yet people say, well, I, I don't have time to go to bank or the bank will charge me a fee if I don't have enough minimum balance or- Well, read clockwork these, then and then do it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right? They've all these reasons- yeah, That's true, too shy. You don't have time, figure it out. all these reasons not to do it. Yeah. And so they will justify that as a reason not to do it. And my goal with the resistance is say, here's what you're going to say and here's the way around it just to protect themselves from themselves. You devote maybe a page in the book to profit first with your kids. Yeah. Um, I have two kids. Uh, they are seven and nine. Uh, nice. They each get $1.50 a week for allowance and nice. 50 cents goes into the piggy bank and we, we deposit it in the bank once or twice a year. 
that's how far we've gotten. I haven't really decided what is the rule governing their savings account and when they get to pull money out of it or anything like that. So I read Profit First Kids, that page, and I was like, ooh, maybe this is the answer. So you have kids. Uh, you've done this with them. Tell me more about Profit First Kids. And let's go into enough detail that our listeners could implement it because I think it's uh, it would be a fun takeaway for those, those of our listeners who do have kids. So I have three children. Uh, two are full adults. My youngest is now 17, so on the verge of being an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did from day one is we don't have an allowance, which, you know, maybe it's a negative term, but it's almost like a subsidy. It's an expected income for no effort. Right. What we did is we set up a worksheet and we had a sheet on our refrigerator. We don't do it anymore, but for different jobs around the house, taking out the trash and recycle, mowing the lawn, you know, for the three-year-old, it was simply uh, cleaning up a part of the house. The, the one rule was it wasn't expected work. Meaning like we expect them to maintain their room and be presentable. So you don't right. get paid for doing what's expected, but it was for the community benefit of the house. And um, there was a dollar amount assigned with it and they would just go. And now it's it's a, a form of capitalism. You, you can do the work or not, you choose and you can bid for the work. So, uh, you know, if all three of them wanted to do the dishes, well, who's willing to do it the cheapest? Well, and I like that because like, you know, my kids are like, I want the new, you know, LOL doll or, or the, the new Shopkins set. And I'm like, okay, well, save your money. And then two months down the road, they finally have enough for it. Whereas if I had a menu on, you know, they can run around the house doing every job on the list and they, we might be able to go to Target that afternoon and they can get whatever toy exactly. they wanted, which is like connects the hard work to the reward. And that, yeah. that's exactly what happened. So my, my daughter in particular, she was the workhorse. She would say, I want to go somewhere. One of the things, by the way, was uh, a trip to Hawaii that she funded herself wow. out of this process. And she would just do every <laughs> single job. And, and, and my, my, one of my sons was, was a little more slanted toward being lazy and wouldn't do anything. And he had no money at times. He's like, well, what are you going to do about mm-hmm. it? He's like, I, I don't know. Maybe you could work for it. <laughs> so th- that realization came around. But we also would give them their money in envelopes. So when my daughter, at the end of the week, we'd tally it up and she'd get money. It wouldn't come in just one envelope. Here's your 50 bucks. It would come in envelopes that we agreed to pre-divide to. Mm -hmm. So she'd get a portion to spend, a portion for her future savings. And we put a big target on it for her was owning a horse, which she does now. Um, And then saved her since she was a child. And coincidentally, just as an adjunct to that story, she didn't pay a penny for that horse. She convinced her university of Rutgers University to buy the horse for her. (laughs) And the school actually did it. And the school pays for the boarding, but it's her horse. That's awesome. Under a research project. And um, and then a portion would be give back to the community. And uh, and she's a great contributor. So that's how we did it. And it instilled these principles. The big fear I have is entitlement. And I've seen it in other parents. And I also realize that as our wealth as a family increases, that I am inherently bringing about entitlement to my children, even though I don't want to, I'm blind to it. And I think this system has been a way to curb it. It's not been perfect, but I'm trying to curb entitlement. I'm trying to arm my children that they can do it on their own. I I think it's more empowerment, right? Because like, you know, my kids see me buying whatever I want and and they're like, why can't I do that? And I'm like, wait for your allowance to trickle yeah. in. But putting that, you know, let, giving them the power to do it, but setting some understanding around, no, this will be what you save and this will be, we always give back to our community. I like that because I think it empowers them to make their own decisions around money. So my wife and I have already talked about it. I think we're going to implement it. Oh, awesome. Um, we just haven't got around to it yet. So that's super cool. Uh, Mike, if our listeners want to find out more about your work, about you know what, what book they should start with, yeah. whatever, um, do you have a, a place they should go? I did. Yeah, I have set up Mecca and uh, the website is, well, 
the long tail, which no one will ever, not long tail, but the long domain that no one will be able to find is MikeMichalowitz.com. Here was the realization, Sam. It's long. <laughs> it's Polish. Like no one can spell that. Mike Motorbike is the website. MikeMotorbike.com. Uh, Mike Mike that was my nickname in high school. The irony <laughs> is I've never driven a motorcycle. I have no intentions to. But Mike Motorbike has all my books. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal for a few years. My articles are there. I'm a podcaster myself. All that stuff's available at MikeMotorbike.com. That's I love that. I need to come up with my own rhyming URL now. So there you go. I love yeah. it. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, listeners, go to MikeMotorbike.com or find all of the links in our show notes. Uh, Mike, thanks so much. Sam, it's been a joy. Thanks for having me. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 